I mean, this the, the purpose of this, like the first little bit of it anyway, is is um, I guess geared towards our SEH shows. Um, I feel a little bit like I don't know what do you think. Uh, I mean, down in down in Teesside, we're a little bit get culpable sometimes of um, not teaching our SHOs enough. I think and just getting letting them get on with the jobbing bit of neurology without actually developing their skills enough. Um, and uh, and obviously the registrars have kind of like neurology teaching days and things, or usually. Um, but our SHU sometimes it's it's more of a more of a service job than anything else. I don't know what, what your observations are, Reese, from the RVI. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you, was that mean to being too um, uh, glib? Uh, because I'm hardwired to be optimistic. But you know, if you um, if you demonstrate enthusiasm, you get given an audit or a um, a QIP project to take on rather <laughs> than teaching itself. And if you come for teaching. At Grand Round of the Ward, we show you a impossible to fathom inflammatory case that's coming through the front door, rather than something that'd be useful to take with you. Yes. Uh, further on, I, I do always think our um, I'm coming round from the window there because it's a bit bright. Um, I think in Teesside, our Grand Round has a very small G in it, um, and is it, it is does does tend to be a bit more. Here's a patient with MS. <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously not very helpful for the consultants often, but uh, but hopefully is is valued by our trainees. We had a variety in South Wales and in Swansea. They had um, um, they really wanted to have that sort of grand educational process, but there was a real jack in the box. So Chris, um, oh, I've forgotten his surname, who um, just couldn't cope with silence. So as soon as the registrar paused for thought, he would answer, it sort of blurted all out. <laughs> Rickards, Chris Rickards, real jack-in-the-box. And um, and so it was just every week was hearing Chris answer the questions. Oh, you're right. Yes, not ideal. There are, no, the, yes, there are there's the odd enthusiast in our, in our grand round, and you have to go, look, listen here. <laughs> this yeah. question is not for you. I know you. I think he was protecting us. I think he was protecting us. Yeah. Um, well, I'm hoping now, uh, should we do a thumbs up? Do, um, now, what was it? We've got a little text box that people can type into. Yeah. Is everybody able to hear? Steph will join me shortly, says Helen. We're in the neurology office, so we'll keep our microphone off. And I'm going to get our SHOs here too. Oh, can you see these text messages? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've just opened the box up. Thank you for that. Nice to see Jolly you. Too. good. Okay, well, look, I mean, I suppose um, uh, for, for the collected audience, uh, guys, so what we're going to do is kind of pitch the initial bit at our SHOs um, and just try and cover some sort of basics that would be really useful for uh, things I wish I'd known maybe as a as a medical SHO, RMO, whatever whatever that we're calling people now. <laughs> um, and then we're going to try and develop the conversation a bit into things that uh, might be more useful uh, for uh, registrar level. I've had some questions that people have been pinging my way, uh, some of which are very sort of practical and some of which are much more esoteric. Uh, and then obviously we'll open the floor um, for conversation. So I suppose it would be useful. I was thinking about this, uh, my, my own kind of uh, rudimentary understanding, Reese, about like what is actually a seizure. Mm -hmm. uh, I was writing this kind of little page for the Tease Neuro website with one of our students and I uh, I, I started off typing away thinking, you know, a seizure is electrical chaos. And then I sort of checked myself and thought, well, is that actually right? So, yeah. so is that right? 
Yeah, the, uh, the world of epilepsy is tied itself in knots with uh, definitions and classifications, and the definition of a seizure is, is one of those situations. It could, um, it could be observational, clinical, it could be a description of what you are seeing or experiencing, um, or it could be something at the um, electrical level, as you say. But of course, the electrical definition is really limited by the fact we don't observe the vast majority of seizures with EEG and there are, there are certain seizures out there that we just can't monitor or observe because they're deep. And so often when I teach, it, there's something about the, something about the organizational change that happens with a seizure that, that's important. I think it's the difference between the kind of hubbub and an audience uh, goes to football and it's the, the noise beforehand, but as soon as people start chanting and it goes round the stadium, there's something mm. about the organization of it that's, a seizure is, odd is that it's hypersynchronous it's something about the organization of it that's really unusual uh, i think that differentiates between a seizure and just an excitable brain okay that's interesting yeah and i like that analogy of the kind of football ground that sort of makes sense to me at some at some level because um, it's really spooky and really odd when you start seeing all the, the all the brain waves doing the same thing all the all the neurons suddenly interlinking with parts of the brain that shouldn't be interlinking with and, and, and the process of that just shuts off, shuts off everything else. And I'm, I'm reminded, I mean, I think sometimes teaching, uh, particularly I was teaching medical, I've been teaching medical students at Teesside for quite a while now and occasionally they get ch chucked a curveball question. Yeah. <clears throat> like my standard teaching about like the duration of a seizure would be, well, you know, like typically the electrical activity of a seizure would last somewhere between 60 and 120 seconds or like you know just pluck a number and it typically then it sort of breaks down and, and, and terminates and one of the students years ago said um why is that and like, why do they stop yeah why aren't we all having seizures all the time yeah you'll be pleased to know that we we don't know the okay. answer to that um, I didn't know the answer either <laughs> yeah so angie trevelyan locally is trying to model that in a dish and i think if you have to make the model that basic mm. that it is in a dish rather than in a animal model or in a in a human it's a sign that we're many steps away from knowing the answer it's got to be something to do with um cellular depletion and he thinks it's a calcium issue you sort of drain the, that calcium pool and you've got nothing left but yeah it, it, as soon as you start thinking about why does it stop it becomes a really interesting question then for your seizures short and punchy but then when they're not that's a, a brain emergency and yeah. um um, yeah, Andy's got some cute ideas with regards to that. Cool. So I think if, if we're happy that there's this sort of weird electrical synchrony all of a sudden yep. that kind of triggers this kind of clinical attack that you witness, and particularly as an SHO, I mean, I'm, you know, I, the seizures you get called to are, are often the sort of tail end of an attack and you're not quite sure whether you should be doing anything or not, and you're not really sure how it started. But we, you know, so it, for our SHOs, what should they, what should they expect of themselves? You know, it's like so if you think about an inpatient seizure, which obviously is the minority. But if they're called to a medical ward, Reese, what would, what, what would your expectation of them be? Like the kind of minimal data set. What do you, what do you want to know as an epileptologist that they, from their that, they, that you'd expect from them? Yeah, it's um. It, it, thankfully it's not overly specialized so you're, you're trying to get a first person narrative description of what has happened i think that one of the most um 
uh, tricky things is when you just get a, um, a, a line in the uh, medical note saying to GTCS last night. Well, that could be <laughs> anything. And, and you know that if, um, even if somebody claims to have a, a special insight, like they say that their mum was a learning disability nurse or their dog had epilepsy, it doesn't make them any more likely to have picked this up. I really want to know who saw what, how did it progress, what was each stage like? And if you get called to the end of a seizure, then you're really doing a, 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 a kind of detective job. You're sort of picking up some of those, uh, um, that narrative description. And you can, you can look to see if the toes still go up and you can look to see if the eyes still, still react and you look to see whether the, the seizure is finished. But a description of somebody in a kind of confused postictal state isn't very discriminatory in terms of what has happened or hasn't happened. Um, when when uh, security guards are at, um, at gigs and they want to know whether somebody who's fainted is good enough to go back to the crowd and find their friends, they ask, can you use your mobile phone? Can you manipulate your phone? And when somebody has a seizure out in the streets, it's often one of the first things they'll do. Mm. So if there's not a good description, knowing when you can actually text or, um, or call somebody again is, is a good sign. Well, that's a really good question, actually. I like that sort of... I like those sort of questions that give you an insight into... Um, you know somebody's neurological function yeah because i think if you're if you have a seizure in the streets i think depending who you are and where you are you're gonna, you're gonna find your partner or your mum or somebody that you trust mm. you know first second or third i think um and th so they may not be a witness but they'll let you know whether they were shocked and anxious because they just had a, a single event on the high street or whether they were absolutely away with the fairies still yeah and so, like, coming back to sort of, you know, like, call to Ward 4 at yeah. 2 a.m., you kind of see this tail end of something. And you, you, so what, what you're saying, I think, for, is, is that really what you need to do then is, is, is kind of ruthlessly interrogate the, the ward staff? Yeah, that's right. And um, ward staff mostly, occasionally it might be somebody in the bay, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the nosy person that opposite you might have seen. And then... Um, if you if you think it's likely to have been a seizure, you in the hospital setting, you're asking was it provoked, mm. and whether it was provoked <clears throat> matters. You know, if you're thinking provoked, yes, no, and then what do they have epilepsy as a pre-existing condition or not? Because if it's pre-existing epilepsy, pound to a penny, there's been a drug error and they've not been given enough. Mm. You know, that's the, the the majority of seizures in people with epilepsy are people who have just be misadministered their meds uh, but in a hospital setting you're doing basic bloods you're looking at using ease you're looking at you know glucose you're looking at uh things that could have triggered a, a seizure okay and in terms then i suppose that's the kind of comes on to this my, my next point which is like a sort of bluffer's guide to inpatient investigation yeah there's, there's what you're going to do at the bedside there and then um, and then there's the kind of like the stuff you're going to boot into the, into the, into the semi rough <laughs> if you're a golfer, you know, for the next day. Um, yeah. uh, and so like there and then bedside stuff, what's, what's of most use? Yeah, I guess if it's a, an inpatient, um, yeah, if, if there's a reversible cause, are they going to go on to have a second seizure? Mm. That'd be useful to know. Um, so, as I said, some some basic bloods and an idea of what they've been prescribed or misprescribed, um, uh, with a plan as to who to call uh, if there's a second event. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of things that we do that are over 
used. You know, the number of people who have recurrent provoked seizures who get a CT head every single time mm. is unnecessary, but I'm sympathetic to the fact that you don't have the full picture when you're appraising somebody and that may be appropriate. Or they're slow to wake up and you want to know whether there's been a secondary um, cause. Um, it depends on the, the age of the person as well, because um, stroke is one of the more common cause of seizures in and, and status in older people. Um, but yeah, for ward patients, you, particularly if it's on a surgical ward, um, you're, you're looking at some kind of imbalance that might tip them over the edge. Mm. And don't beat yourself up if you don't find it. It'll probably be sleep disruption. You know, trying to sleep in hospital is, a, is an absolute disaster and you'll be anxious and you'll be, um, you know, there'll be somebody opposite you who'd had the emer medical emergency the night before. Um, but, um, I mean, I, I find it difficult, sometimes genuinely difficult to know about the role of a thing like a blood gas, a lactate, yeah. to get quite hung up on those in a way. Like I can remember a, a, a time when uh, prolactin was the thing uh, yeah. that told you if it was a seizure or not. And I feel like that's, that's not used now and rightly so. No, it's not, it's not used a lot. Um, I do like a lactate. It's, um, it's a, you know, I'm a connoisseur of these kind of things and I go trawling <laughs> through the uh, regional blood database, the ICE database, looking at, um, I think if you've had a couple of events that have brought you into A&E and there's this biological disruption mm. with an event in keeping with a seizure, um, it's relatively convincing, but nothing in isolation is, is enough. Yeah. Um, and it won't tell you um, definitively what's happened. It's just that something has happened. And as an inpatient, you might find umpteen other causes for having a raised lactate. But for somebody who's been brought into A&E and you don't have the story, it would, it's helpful, useful, what about, but not, uh, to be over, not to be over-interpreted. Yeah, and I think, you know, my concern, obviously, because there's always a, a little bit of it, is it epilepsy, is it a non-epileptic or dissociative yeah. episode, and it's a prolonged thing. And if the lactate, you know, if somebody's had a shaking attack for 15 or 20 minutes, is, is lactate particularly helpful in that setting? I, I, I use it. I yeah. use it. So I think if people who have had two events at home, an event in the emergency department and a fourth in hospital, and they've still got a normal lactate at that stage, but you're talking about convulsive events where eventually if you've seen it, there will be less and less of um, a diagnostic concern. It's mm -hmm. sometimes the pauses and blanks for which you'd never get any biological disruption that um, um, are the hardest things. Yeah. Because, I mean, people publish these, these series all the time, and I'm, they always think they're happening in other people's hospitals, not your own. But there's a, they say a third of people who go to ITU in status have got pseudo status. Yeah. And if, even if it's not a third, even if it's one in 10, it's, that's a big risk, um, the anesthetic, et cetera, et cetera, for these people. Mm. So if we, if we are sort of at the bedside and we've kind of got our basic bloods done, we may or may not have done a blood gas or a venous lactate or one of these kind of, you know, these sort of yep. markers, um, and they're all from cooking. Um, I mean, there's always this sort of sense for an SHO, this uncertainty, I think sometimes so I, I remember as an SHO, like, okay, so this was a, a brief self-terminating thing that looked like a generalized seizure. It's maybe a, a patient with epilepsy that's been yep. in the hospital for something else. Um, and the nursing staff say, well, you know, what are you going to do about that? Yeah. <laughs> what, what? It's, 
I'm not, I'm not trying to um, unpick my specialty, but Phil Smith would often say, don't just do something, stand there. Because actually, if you catch the seizure, you're going to be standing at the end of the bed and watching it, timing yeah. it maybe and watching it. And you're allowed to sit in your hands and think. You know, there's an argument to say that uh, outside of specific examples that a lot of the drug manipulation that we do is um, it's an outpatient uh, specialty rather than inpatient one. Yeah. If you are not sure and this person's at risk of further seizures or this was a prolonged seizure or you've identified that there's a provoking factor, sepsis, whatever, that's put someone at risk, then levetiracetam is your friend. You know, yeah. that, that's the drug that's going to get you out of a sticky situation. And if you were an expedition medic and I, I could only bring one anti-epileptic drug with you, it, it would be Lev. Mm. And what role sort of benzos for somebody who's kind of maybe this is their second attack of an evening and it's again it's terminated i mean you know they're obviously going to be drowsy yeah. anyway in a postictal state do, does one you know yeah. do you give them a benzo if you're the yeah. if safe to do so and it's generally safe for most people particularly in an inpatient setting where you'd be monitored closely um a uh oral clobazam if safe to swallow 10 milligrams is really straightforward and we we get very familiar with either having it as part of a um, semi-emergency plan for people to try and prevent that second or third one, either at home or in hospital, or as a bridging drug to get people home to cover that time. Because it's, it's not a very clever drug. It's going to make you a bit sleepy, and it's going to help the seizures. Um, and you're not going to get problems with drug interactions or tolerance or how to wean it. Mm. They're even ditty. They're the size of sweeteners, so there's not even a swallowing problem. So I guess, uh, yeah, so I'm sort of, I think what I'm taking from that for, at least for our, our SHOs is, you know, the devil's in the detail, isn't it, for the description. And that's, you know, we don't, we don't really want, you know, GTC times two, because um, that doesn't really help us when we come in the next day or two days down the line, depending on how rapid, how rapidly we're responding. Um, yes, yeah, so neurologists have got lots of different words. I mean, Eskimos got different words for snow. Um, the Welsh for rain and neurologists have got all these words for time, relapsing, remitting, you know, fluctuating, you know, and, and so it's something about the chronology and the evolution of the event that's almost as important as what you've seen and how you see it. Yeah. Because uh, a non-epileptic attack might be like a orchestral movement. It'll come in, you know, elements and, and die back down and can come back up again. Where upon seizures, punching. You know, it, it's explosive at onset, and then we'll sort of die back down a little bit. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's the evolution, the, 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 the description of this, then this, then this is really handy. Yeah, okay, so, so detail's good for us. And then depending on the, on the duration of the episode or the frequency of those episodes in that particular time, you may or may not then add something to kind of prevent further episodes and that might be yeah. you know either a kind of benzodiazepine or levetiracetam if they're not already on it yeah <laughs> which was always the hard sink when i know edge and they're already on <laughs> yeah. levetiracetam the, the two things that um maybe not even helpful immediately but eventually that are i, I like um are um a toxicology screen because mm. there's always that feeling they might have taken something might not have done for for an uh, a seizure in, in A&E yeah. and drug levels at that stage too because we 
we do a lot of um, taking things on trust. And I know that if you give me antibiotics for a week, there'll be a couple left over at the end. Mm. I'm not sure which ones I've missed. You know, I, I think I've taken three a day, but I don't know. And if you change someone from best drug A to second best drug B, because of this kind of natural non-adherence, then it's lose-lose because you haven't identified whatever adherence issue they've got and now they're on the second best drug mm. and they'll continue with that pattern and go into the third best drug be called drug resistant um and so we've got a fair few teenagers and people who leave chaotic lives lives ending up on you know inferior meds because of that yeah and i i, I would often say i think probably about one of the few rules of a, of a anti-epileptic drug level is that sort of concordance check yeah. and, the, and the only time to get it done is on the admission bloods and yep. I guess we're getting a little better sometimes at backdating that, you know, so even if it's a patient on the ward and they've been in a day or two, there's probably a UNE sample from their A&E admission, which you can then kind of retrospectively fit a level onto and it gives you, because once they've been in hospital for a day or two, a level is meaningless. Yeah, drug yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And look, we, you can't get drug levels for everything, but if you, most places you'd get a levetiracemolomotrin or a phenytoin. Hmm. And so you can probably, guess use that as a proxy for which other drugs they're not taking yeah that's a good point yeah okay for this i think the other thing that sort of vexes a lot of our juniors and beyond the sort of just you know is it a seizure or not and they kind of how to document that for for best use going forward um the other bit then is you know okay is this status and yeah. you know what what's their role in the management of status yeah. So what, what, yeah so, what should their role in status be? Yeah, status is a genuine medical emergency coming in a couple of different flavours. Convulsive status being the one that we worry about the most. So the difference being that you could have seizures that don't stop that are focal, impaired awareness affecting how you are and you're really in a dreamlike state, or for weird and wonderful metabolic or my. Um, uh, genetic disorders you could have myoclonic seizures that don't stop but it's the convulsive seizure that's a brain emergency and it's one of the few parts of neurology that is useful to have a protocol in your head a, a series of stages and steps um because you know working um wherever that seizure is happening it may not be clear where you get that next drug from that next instruction from uh, how to escalate it so it's useful to um hope for the best and plan for the worst and have that next drug available. So they talk about three stages of status. First stage is really about benzodiazepine um, use. So that's lorazepam most places. <clears throat> and you're getting access and you're looking at reversible causes. Um, but at that stage, you're looking at which epilepsy medicine you're going to bring in next if it doesn't stop. Mm. And there are different protocols, but the, um, the only really real difference between valparit, phenytoin and levetiracetam is whether you're prepared to give enough of it mm. because people tend to underdose epilim and um, levetiracetam. Um, but they're all equally efficacious for adults. Um, and then your third stage, once you're giving that, you're thinking, gee whiz, if this doesn't stop, I need to know how to get hold of an anaesthetist. Mm. And so at each stage you're looking ahead and preparing. And it's that middle stage knowing that you're, your um, dosing based on a weight or an estimated weight is the bit that you could really add value to. Yeah. And I mean, my, 
I, I worry a bit about being too kind of broad, brushstrokey, but you know, as a general rule of thumb, I typically say to our students, a gram and a half of intravenous anything uh, yeah. for that second yeah. stage. That's where I'm going to challenge you, Archie. So, um, so there was a big international study published the end of last year, beginning of this. And they say for people my weight-ish, that um, it can be near three or four grams of lev. Right. Um, and so we've been, we've, we probably haven't had the full benefit of levotiracetamine status because we've been underdosing people. Interesting. Um, and, and sometimes I'm just not brave enough and I'll give two grams pause and another two grams. <laughs> but um, it's, it's really excreted. It's, it's well tolerated. You're not going to drive anybody loopy on a single one-off dose. Mm. And um, yeah, I think we've been underdosing. Yeah. Okay. And would you, you know, if you had your choice, I mean, you've obviously said for expedition medicine, that's what you'd bring. But, yeah. You know, fa faced with a kind of treatment naive patient in status that's had the kind of lorazepam kind of part of the protocol what should, you know what would you reach for first out of like you know because it seems to be phenytoin still the kind of top dog but it's it's an awkward and unpleasant drug to have to infuse yeah do you do you tend to bypass that a bit now yeah i i would for somebody who's never had status before and we've got no other information about them it would be levotiracetam first mm. um i think its lack of drug interaction is helpful because you don't know where they're going to go next in terms of what else. Phenytoin doesn't have that as a benefit. Mm. But, you know, if they... I've got lots of patients with an intellectual disability and we trust phenytoin with them from previous experience, I wouldn't shift and change it. If it's phenytoin for them, it's phenytoin for them. Yeah. Some hospitals get really difficult about which environment you give phenytoin. And it can be, it can cause a sort of a local irritation as well as the cardiac issues. Um, I guess what surprised me in the study was that Valproate was not inferior to those two. Mm. You know, I sort of trust phenytoin like an old friend for good or for bad. And I realized I've been under dosing Lev, but Valproate um, is, a, is a good option if you can't use the other two. And again, dose wise for that one, Valproate. Yeah, not so good for doing that. I'll have to look it up. Um, and you don't have to worry about pregnancy for a one-off that we don't yeah. think that there's, there's any particular reason not to dose women uh, with output on a one-off occasion but what we should definitely be avoiding then for status is the is the homeopathic 250 milligrams of levetiracetam loading if you're do it do it yeah if you're gonna do it do it yeah yeah exactly so you're gonna load load okay um and the other thing i was i was interested when i was putting the page together for the teach neuro website recently i was i was trying to find a good protocol yeah for um for status um i weirdly was finding it quite hard to find a good one yeah um, these kind of american ones but the, the uk ones were like the nice one is it's it's not protocolized all that accessibly the sign guideline was again you know it's kind of visually there's there's something lacking in that so i was finding that a struggle and, the, and also yeah. there was this worry that you know it wasn't status until it'd been going for 30 minutes which seems to me to be rather a long time. Yeah, as much as I said, um, don't just do something, stand there. I couldn't stand there for 30 minutes while watching somebody. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. Um, I, I'd like to think I've got better things to do, but I found our North of Tyne epilepsy guidelines today that should have been revised in 2015. Right. Um, um, I didn't know we had them. Um, and I can tell you that there's not an attractive status protocol within there too. Um, when I've had to 
a couple of them together I've stolen from the Americans yeah. or from that um, that study of the three drugs they've got a nice figure within there yeah um, but you're, you're right <clears throat> equally if I tell people that uh, I don't know there's I think it's no longer true because we've had some big studies recently but the fact that every trust had their own status protocol just just boggled my mind it's like the olden days when there were different drug charts for every trust and different codes for emergency um putting out the call in every trust and you just think oh come on as if life isn't hard enough already yeah. suddenly there's a north of time and south of time status protocol and you know yeah and i, I think i would I, i'm quite keen that um that folk ring us early with if somebody's been fitting for you know I don't know, like 10 or 15 minutes on a ward and the infusion's up. We sort of want to know about those guys, don't we? Um, yeah. I'm amazed how many people end up in intensive care with meningitis and we get called on day two, day three. Mm. You think, I don't know what on earth was happening on day one with the seizures and the confusion that you felt a neurologist couldn't have helped with. Yeah. You know, it's when they're slow to wake up in intensive care, you get the call instead. That's right. Yeah. And they've got like an eight grams of protein. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> thinking, mm, sticky, yeah, sticky. Yeah, something going on in there. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. So I guess um, I guess if we're, we're if we're carrying on with our mythical fictional patient yep. um, who stopped fitting now, having had a whacking great dose of teracetam yep. and some benzodiazepine, what would what would we be wanting um, the next day? in yeah. terms of investigation i mean it's, you know i was talk screens and all those bits and bobs like biochemistry is all kind of bland unhelpful non-contributory um i mean the next the next thing we usually get is a kind of can we have an eeg yeah what's uh, so what role eeg in this in that inpatient setting yeah uh it, 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 I, I can understand the attraction of it you know you've seen an epileptic seizure so you want to organize the epileptic test um, but it's it's unlike it's only well it, it's it's probably not going to give you the answer to the question that you've not asked mm. because um <laughs> uh if you're trying to answer are they slow to wake up because i've given them a, a whacking great big dose of medicine or there's a biological process going on here that i haven't put my finger on or they're in non-convulsive status it would answer that or potentially answer that mm. for you. Um, but um, your, your investigative work is trying to work out, is this seizure part of a biological process? Because that's the nice thing about working in epilepsy is that we see loads of different diseases, stroke and tuberous sclerosis and weird and wonderful genetic conditions. And, um, and your stratification of where to go will depend pretty much on whether they're known to have epilepsy beforehand and if not, how old they are, because stroke dominates the vast majority of seizures and status in older people. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, day two, day three, uh, EEG is not going to tell you the important things like when they can go back to drive, which medication I should start necessarily. Mm. Um, because the real role for EEG is classification. Um, rather than was this an epileptic seizure or not yeah yeah and I, I i think i'm comfortable with that i feel like we maybe as a register i particularly as a neurology register sort of used eeg too much i worry a little bit now that i don't use it enough 
yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of this pendulum swung the other way now. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm doing some of my patients a disservice in that regard. But oh, wait, I think um, I mean even within the um, epilepsy team within us within Newcastle, we use it differently uh, in the first seizure clinic. Hmm. Um, and I think if, as soon as you get people who've had similar training, same organisation, seeing the same patients, using things differently, you realise, well, there's either a problem with us or there's a problem with the test. It's, mm. you know, we, we're still reliant on, you know, a, a, a test originated in the 1930s and the only difference is it's no longer drawn on paper, but it's now digitally produced. I'm really looking forward to the second generation of EEG, whatever it looks like. Yeah. What about, um, so if we shift our focus away from inpatients then, because I guess that's the natural kind of thing, is like most of what we do as neurologists isn't inpatient, mm -hmm. um, uh, except in the post-coronavirus era. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, I mean, it's the same sort of question then, I suppose, for, um, for outpatient, which is how, how does one investigate that and do you, diff do you, do, you do it differently? In a, in yeah, a more I do. Case. Yeah, I do. I'm a little bit more structured. I've got a bit more of a formula, and I think part of that is because first seizure is quite a high volume specialty, mm. and so for your own sanity, it's useful to have a structure so you can go back to thinking. You don't have to sort of second guess yourself and say, "Did I do that or did I not do that?" It's useful to know that, you know, for the vast majority of people who have some form of blackout, I will have seen an ECG. It either will be on the day or I've made sure I've seen it from the emergency department. Mm. And um, I'll know what drugs they're on and I'll know uh, who lives with them at home and I'll know if they drive. You know, I'll have certain yeah. things, certain boxes I know I will have ticked. And for me, I get an EEG on anybody for whom I am sufficiently uh, persuaded they've had an epileptic seizure. Um, um, but it's because it's an awful tool to try and work out was this a fit or not. Right. You're, you know, effectively, you're seeing people four to six weeks after they had a blackout that lasted three minutes and it took them an hour and a half to get to come around. And you're using a snapshot of the organization of their brainwaves six weeks after you've seen them uh, to try and work out what happened back then. It's a phenomenally speculative test at that stage i mean it's different in kids because the photosensitivity and the fact that you can provoke seizure with the hyperventilation increases your yield and it was different in australia because we used to get the eg the day after mm. keep everybody in hospital overnight you'd get the eg the morning after your seizure and so we got a lot of non-specifically abnormal egs as the brain was recovering um but that's just not how we work um and so you also have to know how your local team report your EEGs because you don't want to be, uh, the risk is always over-interpreting um, just, just bad luck. You have a bit of slowing on that day and suddenly a, that, um, the ball starts rolling and you end up with a, an epilepsy diagnosis you can't shake. Yeah, and particularly, I guess if there's asymmetry, I feel that sometimes that's, I have a tendency to default to saying, well, asymmetry exists. Mm -hmm. And um and I don't get I don't use that if 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 I have an EEG to interpret, I would be very cautious of interpreting a little bit of non-specific asymmetry as a clue that yeah, this could be a left temporal focus type of thing. And I, I find that is is that is that 
reasonable. Yeah. Sometimes at that stage, I'll get a sleep-deprived EEG, which often describes the patients as a stress EEG. It's your brain as stressed as we can make it. Because if the abnormalities are no worse at that stage, then they're probably not significant. Mm. If there's still a little bit of slowing on one side that's still there, then that's just you, I think. So am I, I, I'm I'm interested in what you said. So if if you're doing a first-fit clinic and you see somebody and you are fairly convinced that they have had a seizure yeah did i sort of am i interpreting right what you said that you would tend to organize an eeg for them irrespective of age yeah i do my i, I do, not everyone does i, I yeah. do i do because um occasionally you'll get people for whom their panic attacks have actually been focal seizures all along and they haven't recognized this raising arising anxiety and um that funny feeling that they get has been little focal seizures and um, I tend to like a little bit more information when it comes to filling in the driving, the DVLA forms. Mm. I, I tend to like to have had a normal scan, normal EEG. Um, but I've got, got to be honest and say not everybody would get an EEG at that stage. Um, and it is a low yield investigation at that stage too. You're going you to see a lot of normal EEG if you get one for everybody who's had a first seizure. And, and is there a sort of age cutoff, Reese, where you would you'd start then to say, well, ah, you know, this. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Something old. I'm not like EEG is not going to help me here. Or like what's, at what point do you start to dial down that enthusiasm for EEG in that setting? Yeah. And I'm also pragmatic with regards to the environment as well, because I don't know if you've got um, Alzheimer's associated with Downs in a care home. I, I, I know what this is going to be, you know, I know that you'll have, focal seizures and myoclonic seizures and, I, and an EEG is not going to change what I do here or if you've had a, um, a significant stroke and you're having seizures afterwards there's nothing the EEG is going to tell me that we don't know already. What is less certain is that there's certainly a group of people who are working age you know sort of 50s 60s who quite often have a single uh, seizure and I find having normal tests for them for is reassuring to me and for them for getting back driving at six months. Yeah. Um, I often rem- remember those and they come around quite commonly because they are devastated about the driving restrictions. Yeah. They think if the seizure wasn't bad enough. You're going to take away. I, I, you know, and they always tell you they've just bought a new car. And, <laughs> right. It tends to be a kind of chauvinist male who doesn't like being driven by their wife. You know, it's, um, you know, they're, they're just devastated. With a BMW. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. It? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, uh, yeah. So I, I feel like I, I, I definitely under request EEG in comparison to your practice. Yeah, um, and I guess that uh, partly that's individual variation, and partly and completely defensible. Just in yeah. this setting. Um, just, uh, just by the by, we we uh, just started auditing. At what point, if you don't have a risk factor like a stroke, or at what point? Um, age really reduces the the um, returns and I think when I see those data that will really change my practice because it'll be an audit of my myself and my colleagues over the last couple of years and I think there's something about seeing your own practice reflected back at you that mm. makes you change because you always say oh they do things differently in Cleveland they do things differently in <laughs> I, I had a sort of you know I guess you have epiphany moments in your career sometimes just from conversations and I think it's one of the reasons for this, these sort of um, kind of zoom cast type things it hopefully is that somebody listening is going to go oh actually that's really interesting didn't think that before 
I remember feeling a bit embarrassed as a relatively advanced stage neurology registrar, um, chatting to a chap called Doug Crompton, who you probably yeah. Um, Doug and I are very good friends. Doug's an epileptologist out in, in Melbourne. Um, and I, I was just sort of talking to him about my sort of, you know, my role as a neurology reg was like, is it a seizure or is it not? And he looked a bit disappointed in me. He's like, really, is that, that's all that you can muster the enthusiasm for? Because <laughs> like, really, what? why not? Like, is it what epilepsy syndrome could this yeah. You know what? You need to dig deeper and be more interested in this. It's you know your job is not just is it a seizure, is it syncope, or is it a dissociative non-epileptic attack. Although I was obviously focusing on that um, for a while, and I think for our essay it shows that's really hugely important to have that ability to d distinguish those kind of three main categories. Uh, but definitely, if we're thinking about like what I was thinking as a registrar, I just I, I, it was really like. I felt terrible after that short conversation with Doug. Well, yeah. you can't beat yourself up, Archie. I think um, I'm not going to speak to you or the training that we've received, but geez, I think it's been historically really easy to do epilepsy badly. Mm. Uh, I think um, people were grateful for the epilepsy follow-ups in their clinics because they could be quick. You'd ask, are you still having the fits? And you'd pull a lever that was more tegretol or less tegretol and uh, that would be pretty much it and yeah. you'd, then your clinic would run to time um but i my, my practice is quite narrow it's, it's epilepsy mostly and you're right the bit that i love is digging underneath the hood and looking at the evolution of this illness and trying to get underneath and particularly for me it's the genetic epilepsies um that really typify that the best but for anybody it's if you work out what type of seizure and what pattern when they came on, how they respond to medicines, you can start to predict the future and people's trajectory a bit better. Um, and that's the attractive bit. So, I mean, and obviously I, I, I don't really have a very good brain for remembering syndromes, even within movement disorders, which is my thing, embarrassingly. Um, I mean, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, I think serves as a really good yeah. kind of template uh, and that was Doug's point to me was like, if you're not going, if you're not going to memorize lots of epilepsy syndromes, at least have a, an understanding of JME because it as a springboard into the idea of the phenomenology of different seizure types existing in more in, in one person, yeah. that's, that, that's a kind of prism that kind of opens that up a bit more. Um, is that, you know, so maybe can we talk a little bit about why JME has that, you know, what are the seizure types in JME? Why why it matters in terms of uh, taking a history and investigation, why, what, what that informs? Yeah, yeah. So um, if you were going to look at an organisation of the epilepsies, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy would sit underneath the idiopathic generalised epilepsies. Mm. But to if you distinguish it, you'd know that it had a different trajectory, to repeat a previous point. So... Um, you'd be looking at somebody who has, well, let's be honest, the, 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 the story normally is a, a convulsive seizure, um, 12, 13, 14. And then when you take the history, you realize they've also been having blank spells mm. going back a couple of years before that. And then these little jumps and jerks that may not be obvious to other people, but they can feel them, they know them, they feel twitchy. I had somebody recently say it felt like an electric sneeze. I sort of, I sort of know what an electric sneeze would feel like. You know, it's, like it's, you can't control it and it happens. 
Um, because it's always easy going forward. If you know you've developed my cloners, you're looking for this and looking for that, but that's not how it happens. There's a lag. And um, yeah, you could, you could say it's a good news, bad news. Epilepsy, the good news is you'd respond to Valproate, and the bad news is it's lifelong. Now, neither of those two are 100% accurate, but that's the ballpark. Um, unless you're female, where you don't get the first choice of the best drug. Yeah. Um, but you're right, in terms of where it sits. So you'd think in terms of how it's named, it would be very closely related to the other absence epilepsies that are distinguished by the age of onset of the absence epilepsy and how likely you are to have convulsive seizures, how likely you are to be photosensitive. But it's really its own beast. Um, it's, it certainly has got the longest tail in terms of um, surviving and being active and even drug refractory into adulthood. Um, and the genetic architecture of it would suggest that it really is its own cluster of diseases or single disease. How do you eke out the story? Because I mean, at the time, the times that I've seen it, you know, like, I, at memorable times, you know, in your training, yeah. you think, oh, that's what this is. Yeah. It's maybe somebody who's maybe 17 or 18 and had a, a you know, a second seizure or something. Maybe had one when they were 14, yeah. you know, and they come to see you as a, as a young adult. And then you're wanting to get into this, okay, is this a genetic epilepsy syndrome? You know, and is it the one I've heard of? Yeah. <laughs> and um, what I struggle with sometimes, because obviously the, the, the big ticket seizure is obvious, yep. usually. It's that other one. It's those other ones like the myoclonic jerks and, yeah. the, and the absence that are really hard to eke out. Yeah. Have, you any, have, you, have you any tips for, for getting that um, out? I think sometimes you just have to be dogged. And I'm not trying to say you put words into the patient's mouth, but mm -hmm. there's a way of phrasing and rephrasing or trying to work out what is myoclonus because you don't want to just get everybody. Sometimes when I'm really tired, I'll jump a bit when I go off to sleep or yeah. if my legs are crossed, my leg might jump a little bit. Sometimes it'll be the partner. There'll be a big sister or a partner in the room who will say, that's you, you, you do that. And then you'll have to have the common sense check of, is it mostly in the morning? Is it more likely when you've had a bad night's sleep or if you've been ill? Um, I kind of like the, the jumps and jerks, the myoclonus that might cluster a little bit, sort of bunch up at times, then disappears for a couple of weeks and comes back again. Um, and it, there's this, the people with JME are almost like uber teenagers. They've got this um, chronobiology where they need loads of sleep mm. and yet deprive themselves of it. So they also, you know, they'll have this kind of owl sleep pattern of going to bed late, lying in in the morning. And so it's not unusual for them to have a seizure on the day they come to clinic because that's the only day you've made them get up at <laughs> half eight, nine o'clock to come on in. Um, and they'll have the story of the first fit after a camping trip or a, a New Year's Eve party because of the sleep deprivation and alcohol. So they're quite um, sensitive to being triggered, those seizures too. And then a nice one for what my clones. Sorry, is, I was going to say, what about the absence? Because I find that awfully yeah. hard. I don't have a great clue for our absences. You get, if, um, if you don't have, if people haven't picked them up at the time going forward, asking for them going back is really tricky. And some people will spontaneously say, I was always a daydreamer at school and you might be following that forward. But I've, there are lots of people for whom I've just never certain. It's a bit rubbery still. And that, I find that also then a, a tricky thing with, with respect to driving. Yeah, yeah. And JME because 
you know, you it feels to me to be quite obvious that you've suppressed the generalized seizures and the myoclonic jerks are kind of yep. self-evident. This sort of do they or do they not have absence? Yeah. That's hard. Is is that where EEG is helpful or can be can be. Uh, can be. Um it the tricky so one of the reasons why perhaps we use a little less EEG broadly for surveillance is people are pretty just brilliant at whipping out their phone and filming what they see. Or let's be honest, the, phone, the phone's probably out already yeah. and something to film what they see. But an absence is just quiet. You've got to be really on your metal to, to visual an absence seizure in the way that you might be able to pick some myoclonus in you know, the breakfast table. Um, so yeah, that absence, absence is hard. If you're young, you can trigger it perhaps with hyperventilation or uh, you're more likely to have an abnormal EEG, but um, it's, yeah, it's a tricky one, actually. Right. Good. Well, I'm glad it's tricky. That uh, makes, what, me, feel, makes what, me feel better. One of the ones I like for, um, so triggers in JME is, is asking people about their photosensitivity. And they will say things like, I, I watched a film or I played something on the Xbox and I had a seizure two days later. And you go, well, that, that's nice, but that's not photosensitivity. It needs to be provoked at the time. But it's the environmental stories of lights coming through trees or central reservations flickering as you sort of looking out the window. Um, and if you ask enough about that, you'll get some some good stories back. That's a sort of you know w w I think particularly as neurologists we're we're into the kind of the we like the killer question the sort of that sort of you know tada moment where you you ask a question that nobody else has asked. Yeah. Um, and, and suddenly it becomes clear that you know there's this other thing going on they're moving sort of questions like that but they're and they're clearly absolutely questions as well then by the signs of it um there was a message there um we were just talking a little bit about um status weren't we and um uh, there's a message came through could we talk a little bit about refractory status on intensive care yeah it's an evidence-free area it's where witchcraft starts um <laughs> creeping in and it's hard because i i, I um I think sometimes you like bits about your specialty that are um, either things that are treatable or the things that you get, um, or things that are difficult to never get a bit of um, uh, a reward from it. Mm. Um, but I mean, yeah, drug refractory status and intensive care. Um, the most difficult thing is that you probably don't know the cause of the status at that stage. Um, and then even if you do, if it's somebody with a complex mitochondrial illness or something else you're probably cycling through a series of options um with increasingly uh, lower uh, returns um and then you're never entirely sure whether the last option worked or whether it was just due to break uh, anyway we don't see a lot of the, the hardest is what they call norse uh, new onset refractory status epilepticus um, and when that is super refractory and it's not autoimmune, then that's really tough. Mm. Yeah. Um, so so no really good top tips there. <laughs> no, I mean, what, what witchcraft do you use? So we've, we've used ketogenic diets, steroids, immunoglobulin, um, ECT, you know, there, there, you know, as I said, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky, tricky. Um, in a, a nice thing about intensive care is you can make sure that you're adequately dosing. So, you know, good for levels, good for, um, you can mon monitor burst suppression so you can have intermittent EEG monitoring in the way that you'd never have. Um, 
in other circumstances. Um, and you sort of start with your levels of risk. So it's convulsive status that is the big concern, uh, focal status less so, and myoclonic, state, myoclonic status like you'd get after a hypoxic brain injury perhaps, or mm. is, yeah, you want to treat it because you can see something jumping, but it's, it's just an angry brain and it's unlikely to be really worth the, um, the drug load. Have you ever, I mean, we're thinking about you because you're, you're running through some things like that. Certainly we've tried occasionally with refractory states like IVIG and immunotherapies. Um, ECT wouldn't have been on my list. No, no. There's an enthusiastic psychiatrist who keeps trying to persuade us. Uh, I have to, I've never, I've never um, gone down that route. Have you ever snuck a vagal nerve stimulator into somebody with refractory status on an ICU? Is there ever going to be a role for that? Yeah, there are, people have. Um, I had a colleague who expedited a VNS that would have gone in anyway. Hmm. Um, so th th people have. Um, we've used the ketogenic diet on a couple of occasions hmm. um, because people are, you know, it's a, it's a replacement feed at that stage. Yes. Um, it's tricky because people are sick, so trying to work out what level of ketosis is safe and sensible is um, unclear. But that's probably something I would do after blind immunoglobulin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then also perhaps having a chat with the anaesthetist about a change of um, anaesthetic agent. You know, um, depending on what's going on, ketamine can be quite um, helpful. Okay. No good thoughts anyway, because I think, yeah, so you do feel out of your depth. I mean, even, even as a consult, as a consultant neurologist, you feel out of depth, out of your depth. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it's good to know that actually there isn't a no. right or wrong for that one. And, and I, I, it's, it's certainly a situation that I'd be very happy phoning a friend. Yeah. Um, you know, there are particularly some of the London ICUs which have a great experience in super refractory status because they will just because the population density down there, people are much more likely to be shipped into a big central London hospital. And so I, I'd, I'd very quickly get on the phone and speak to a friend, I think. Okay. Um, I mean, another blind spot, I think, certainly for me, um, you know, maybe, maybe others listening would, would echo this, is, is discussions, again, thinking, we're sort of back to the outpatient department, is about, you know, the, when to introduce the concept of SUDEP, Ah, yeah a consultation and uh and how yeah i find that awfully hard yeah it is um so if you ask people who have been bereaved so people who have lost somebody to a pseudep death mm. they say that you can't tell people often enough or early enough but of course you're not necessarily asking the entire population because there will be a degree of certainly a degree of uh, anxiety produced necessarily or unnecessarily mm. when it is discussed. So I have to admit, I don't discuss it at first seizure myself. Um, and I will um, often discuss, but it's the next, the next consult when it's, um, when we're having the, this is epilepsy and you're probably going to need medication mm. because it's part of a, conversation about risk reduction and that's how I frame it now some people will come straight out and say my friend's cousin died of epilepsy and that's in many ways a gift because that frames the consult and you know that they know mm. but otherwise I'm talking about what they can do themselves that will reduce risk 
while also acknowledging that there is something, some risk that will not be amenable to change. Mm. And uh, really what we're trying to get people to buy into is taking their medicines regularly. Yeah. Um, that's the biggest way we can modify their, their risk. And so, yeah, wait, waiting until there's a, a therapeutic relationship maybe with a patient at visit two or three is preferable, I would say, for almost every uh, kind of difficult discussion. Yeah, I, I, I think so. There's a lot of what I do that, same for you, I'm sure, that um, whether it's getting a, a complex patient in the transition clinic or seeing somebody in the genetic epilepsy clinic or, or just somebody's terrified because they've had their first seizure and they're worried about driving and employment and relationships. That is about narrowing that gap. Um, so I'm chatting a lot today, but I say very little in clinic. You know, I do a lot of nodding and smiling and, you know, and trying to listen because um, uh, you can't fast track that rapport. And if they trust you, they'll, you, you could be with them for quite a long journey and they'll, um, they'll let you take them anywhere. Mm. Yeah, having having had one of my patients die recently, young epilepsy patient, uh, conscious of the fact that I do, I, I don't think I ever discussed SUDEP. Now, yeah. thankfully, an epilepsy nurse was also involved in his management who meticulously documented those discussions. But it did it did make me realise, and it was sl- sort of slightly conscious on my part because it was a it was it was a difficult it was a difficult dynamic to navigate, but. Um, I do, you know, reflecting on that, probably think it was important, that, at least on one occasion for me to have raised yeah. up. Um, I, 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 a lot of medicine is a, is a team sport. And so if, um, if the specialist nurse has covered that well, that is probably fine. Yeah. Um, the, the, there's, a, there's a really good charity that used to be called Epilepsy Bereaved and is now called Suit Up Action. And they, they help people who've lost somebody, any form of epilepsy related death. Um, and their um, suggestions that we just have an annual sort of acknowledgement of risk, even if it's a pro forma, even if it's just for people to know what they can do. And it, it could be employment risk or it could be pseudo risk. Um, but there are some that are just so hard because I can't prescribe a bed partner if you're sleeping alone. And I can't very readily turn your nighttime seizures to daytime seizures if that's your risk. Um, so there are some things that are tough there was a, a question that come through on the on twitter earlier on a little bit about provoked seizures mm-hmm. which i think is a good one um which was around this sort of somewhat variable approach to anti-epileptic prescribing yeah. in a neurosurgical unit after a patient maybe with like a traumatic brain injury if he's had like a seizure that's you know or a cluster of seizures after that you yeah. know I mean, you know do, does one start treatment does one wait if they you know how do, how do you is there a way of deciding that uh look it, as always it's individualized but if um if it it probably doesn't change where you end up but i am sympathetic that if you've got a head full of blood Mm. um or scar or clot and um you're on a neuro itu just how disruptive or scary um a seizure would be Mm. um and it depends what you're starting and why um answering it the other way around you know as as one of my training jobs i was in a rehabilitation unit just watching people get really 
paranoid and irritable um, on levetiracetam and be going, oh, well, it's their brain injury. Oh, well, you know, so they're disinsective. <laughs> well, it's amazing how quickly that gets better when you wean down their, their yeah. levetiracetam. Um, but I mean, relative to perhaps a clot extending, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a balance of risks. Mm. Um, so, so, I mean, the teaching is the vast majority of provoked seizures will not need, um, uh, will not need treatment. Um, and, but it depends what it is. There, there, there are certainly people with al alcohol withdrawal seizures who just have a mild epilepsy that's been provoked by their, their drinking or cessation of drinking. And so I will take over, I will take on a lot of people who've had drink and drug seizures for investigation and see what might be underpinning it. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I, uh, there are quite a few comments about like, you know, does anything, does anything not, does Levitrastum not work for, is there anything Levitrastum doesn't work for? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 was pleased, I was pleased I saw that comment on Twitter because I had time to think. So I, I've got, I've got one example. Yeah. Um, it's really niche and I'm sorry for that. Um, so UCB is the company that makes um, Levitrastam and they made a brother of Levitrastam that they called Brivaracetam because why not? Yeah. And you can't give Lev if they're on Briv, even though a tiny whiff of Briv in the system and it mops up all the, um, the receptor, uh, where it's a vesicle. And, um, uh, and so it's an example where if you gave Lev um, to somebody who's in status and they had a bit of Briv on board, it, it wouldn't touch the sides. Right. But for epilepsy, it would, it's the best selling anti-epileptic drug in the UK is in, in terms of number of scripts for a reason. And some of that is it's um, benign uh, drug interaction profile. Yeah. And the fact you can start it quickly or slowly because yeah. for, the, for, for most people, you'd say, look at the BNF escalation strategy and go half as quickly as they recommend because it's a great way to make a good drug look bad is to make people dizzy and fall over by going up too quickly with the drug. Um, but you could probably get away with that with Levitrasta. Mm. And I, I mean, I tend to be, and I'm, I'm sure not the only one that has noticed that the anti-epileptic drugs beginning with the letter L seem to be the ones that are, you know, best tolerated, have the, yeah. the broadest use. And I, I include lecosamide in that um, mm. now because I, seems to have a role in more in the focal epilepsies but is is that is that a reasonable rule of thumb for our junior doctors as well yeah i mean uh, it's funny how things fall out that way you could have lyrica as as another drug that doesn't really have many um drug drug interactions mm. um and then the p drugs are all pretty potent and have got that they're defined by their Drug drug interactions rather than lack of them, mm. phenytoin, primazone, phenobarb, parampanol, um, you know, maybe not pregabalin, but you know, they're, they're sort of, the P drugs are pretty dirty. Um, I, I think it's no bad thing to acknowledge that there may be thirty drugs for epilepsy, but your, you know, the clubs in your bag or your armoritum is, is going to be limited because it's useful to get to know and trust a couple of medicines. Mm. Which ones can you move up quickly or slowly? Which ones would you give to a friend or a family member if they were crook? Um, um, because I think once you are familiar with how you'd swap from one to another um, within that limited range, it helps to demystify epilepsy. I think the fact we've got so many meds and therefore in theory there'll be a unique combination. There'll be somebody out there on rafinamide and teargabine 
you know, one. You'll be one person ever. Um, and nobody will be able to explain why or how. Um, that probably doesn't help uh, bring people into the specialty. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree. And I think, you know, familiarity is really important for whatever drug you're using. Yeah. Um, and safe. Yes. Um, I'm struggling. I had a question on the tip of my tongue and I can't quite remember what it was now. It may come back to me. Um, I mean, there is a there is a sort of sense that um, kind of anti-epileptic drugs have a range of kind of under-recognized side effects, uh, you know, mental health kind of problems being part of that and cognitive yeah. complaints. And I always find it a little tricky, I mean, because I'm sure you get asked this more than I do, but, you know, your young epilepsy patient who's maybe reasonably well controlled, actually, maybe only has a couple of fits in a year and is on, you know, a, a drug, maybe two, um, and yet has significant kind of cognitive issues. And, you know, in, intuitively you'd say, well, it can't be the seizures doing that because they're well controlled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what is it that's doing that? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, uh, that's a, a really nice angle of, um, of questioning because uh, the, so it's um, Epilepsy Week and Epilepsy Research UK are leading with the slogan this year that epilepsy is more than just seizures mm. because, you know, the amount of um, men mental health symptoms and symptomatology, you know, almost like kind of a sub-threshold. So you're not quite anxious enough to have gone to your GP to go see a psychiatrist to get a, a diagnosis of, but you're living with a poor quality of life with anxiety, mixed with depression, some insomnia or disordered sleep. Um, and I think if you've, and, and, and in terms of the chronology of it, sometimes the mental health symptoms predate that first seizure as perhaps there's something neurobiological going on, which means you're a bit more vulnerable perhaps to some of the adverse side effects of the medication. Um, and so you've got a natural anxiety phenotype that's being elevated by the fact you've had seizures, you're waiting that Damocles sword for it to come back again, you're off work, can't drive, and the drugs just feel odd and weird and you've, you're kind of um, oversensitive waiting to for that next thing to happen, you and so you're um, you know sort of somatizing a little bit. But beyond that, I think there's also a, an intrinsic cognitive um, components of epilepsy that we've probably underappreciated for a long time, because it was easy to pin it on the old drugs when the old drugs were dirty. Mm. Um, I think we haven't necessarily done the right types of clever research in terms of imaging, because when you look at epilepsy at scale. There are patterns of mass atrophy over a period of time that isn't necessarily related to seizure control or drugs. Mm. Um, and yet funny forms of cognitive complaints that is, are missed by normal tests. Um, they call it sort of um, accelerated forgetting. So within a, um, a WIMS test, you know, long-term memory is, can you remember something after half an hour? Accelerated forgetting is, um, you, you may not remember your honeymoon after three weeks or you know, if you're, if you're a school kid, you know, other people get away with cramming at the end of the year, but you just won't remember of being in that class. Uh, so cramming doesn't work for you. Um, so I think it's real and it's genuine. I tend to, to try and tackle mood and sleep first mm. because that is a good thing. And then make sure people are on the smallest dose of the drug that works. My question that I couldn't remember, speaking of accelerated forgetting, the question I yeah. couldn't remember has now come back to me. 
um, which was, you know, when I was teaching the uh, SSC students, um, and I'm not at all involved in any of the year one, year two bits of under, uh, the sort of undergrad curriculum. Um, but I, I see a lot of students coming through talking about valproate and carbamazepine as the two anti-epileptic drugs. So coming back to this idea that if it doesn't begin with L, don't try it type of thing. But um, it seems to me that there's still some sort of received wisdom or active teaching, worryingly, suggesting that valproate and carbamazepine are the exemplar anti-epileptic drugs for treating epilepsy. Is, is, do you get that sense of it as well? From Yeah, very much so. There was a very influential um pragmatic uk study a head-to-head -head study of new and old anti-epileptic drugs which um there's something different about valproate in valproate is if you've got an idiopathic generalized epilepsy is certainly more efficacious than the alternatives no not certainly it's probably it's probably co-equal with levetiracetam um but because valproate did so well in the first of these studies there became a kind of mythology around these papers that old drugs were better than the new drugs. Mm. At the same time, we'd had our fingers burnt with vigabatrin, which caused uh, retin uh, uh, visual field problems. Mm. We had uh, teagabine taken off the market or really downplayed because of um, absent status. And then much later, we had um, um, retigabine that turned people blue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. And... So there was just that big, there was a certain generation of, of influential epileptologists that felt better the devil you know. And mm -hmm. so there's, uh, there are centers that would still be teaching Tegretol first, Valprit first, um, which is fine if, I don't know, one year seizure freedom uh, is your end point. But there are, there are you know, carbamazepine has an enzyme inducing effect which isn't good for bones and is probably not good for a long-term cardiac health either mm. and i can measure your bone thinning with a dexa and i can give you lifestyle advice about smoking and drinking whatever but i i don't i, I don't have a way of necessarily measuring your increased cardiac risk with some of these drugs mm. um and the ones that you mentioned begin with l that aren't enzyme inducers would not be thought to carry those risks yeah that's interesting it just it bothered me a little bit and obviously like the Carbamazepine certainly has a role, but um, uh, particularly now with the kind of Valproate story um, yep. playing out um, across the land, I think uh, if there's a message out there that our students are coming through with uh, the idea that your first line anti-epileptic drugs should be Valproate for generalized seizures and carbamazepine for focal seizures, yep. um, you know, I, I think that's, that's, that's old news, isn't it? Oh yeah, very much so. Very much so. And if if after the Valprit scandal was really interesting because I wasn't involved with any of the evidence going towards the um, select committees, and so I wasn't sure what they were going to do. I I really thought they could have taken it off the market. Mm. I really thought they could have made it a male only drug, uh, so banned it for women entirely. Um, uh, and so we've ended up in a situation where we're having annual conversations that are documented in a prescribed way prescribed way um with um you know suddenly i'm 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 now saying oh fantastic you're a lesbian that's brilliant news <laughs> What's the still being gay this time next year you know good things that are just weren't part of my training yeah. um my colleague joe anderson in newport um they recalled loads and loads of people from the gwent valleys 
and he'd um, he'd worked out for efficiency. The first question was not, um, "Hello, how are you? How are you getting on with your seizures?" But what's the chance of you being pregnant this time next year? Which is a weird opening line. Yeah, you know, the, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it'd love lots of lots of people. So oh, I, I don't know why he's asking this. I, I don't even like sex. You know. <laughs> right. I've okay. had okay. some car crash kind of um, consultations recently, where you know you feel like you're 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 a slave to the to the form yeah and, and you've got a lady with a, a woman of childbearing age who is like i have there's no chance i'm getting pregnant and you're like yeah. i know but what precautions are you taking that i can document and she's like and like well this is the first time we've met and this is what we're ta- this is what we're talking about yeah um, entirely until, until that report she walks out the door and asks that old man is really <laughs> interested in me getting pregnant i thought it was the epilepsy doctor yeah yeah um, I, I, again, I've also had some issues with, you know, got a, a young patient who is very, very well controlled on Valparate, quite a low dose, um, is thinking about having a family, is beyond anxious about the idea of being taken off it, um, and has tried levetiracetam in the past and failed on that and had seizures and had to stop driving. And she's kind of, you know, her life is in order now on Valproate. And I'm finding that awfully hard to navigate the yeah it is i think the fact that we're sending a long that this is now a slow drawn out shared discussion with patient with patients family um is probably a good thing even if you end up making the same decision you might have done if it was a fast decision hmm. i think dose matters i think the drugs that the valparates co-prescribed with matters um and i think maternal quality of life matters too you know, or potentially maternal, you know, female, you know, women of childbearing potentials, quality of life. Yeah. Because there's a funny status quo that you're sort of presuming that this young person that you're meeting at the age of eight up to 48 is about to be pregnant at all stages throughout that journey. You know, most women are not pregnant for most of their life. Uh, I had a good uh, question there from an ace who said, uh, should we start levetiracetam or valproate on a man with a genetic generalized epilepsy? Oh yeah, great. That's a cracker. Um, I, I, oh, that's a cracker. I think I'd probably start levetiracetam more often. I think if you had, <clears throat> if I caught you a little bit late into your illness and you had all three seizure types of myoclonus absence, generalized tonic-clonic seizures, frequently, and you were photosensitive, you'd probably get valparate. But if you were one down from that, I think I'd want to see how you responded to levetiracetam first and use valparate for a step up if we weren't winning. Um, I think the, the, the limiting factor for levetiracetam is this mood issue. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the, the uh, web forums that uh, patients posted onto uh, coined the phrase Keprage. And it's this not to 60 tempo, it's this irritability, you know, yeah. kind of crackling underneath the surface. And you ask people, how are you going on? They say, I'm all right. And over their shoulder, the partner's going, no, 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 because they're treading on egg- eggshells uh, when they're around. And if you're lucky, it's just an initiation phenomenon and it'll settle. Um, very very rarely you get true psychosis with it that um, will uh, stop and i didn't used to believe in it but we went back and looked for the cases in cardiff and found them um but if you and you're more likely to get those side effects if you're young if you've already got a neurological disability if you've got a pre-existing um 
sort of mental health problem in, in the psychosis um, domain rather than uh, depression. Um, but for the vast majority of people, it's a really safe and sensible option. Um, I mean, the Valparaiso, I think, you know, still big issues around some of its side effects, you know, in blokes as well, you know, like the kind of the weight gain and sort of metabolic impact of Valparaiso. It's, 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 it's not without its problems. Uh, yeah, the way that people defend Valparaiso, and to a lesser extent, Phenytoin, it's a bit like um, that friend of yours from from school days that you you know can't hold his drink and is oh yeah okay so it makes you fat and it, it gives you Parkinson's and yeah and you know you'll go but you you know you'll get Nash or what you but you know it you know yeah you know yeah people make excuses for it and after so many times you think there's got to be a better option than this yeah like this sort of abusive relationship you keep going back to. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I won't get gum hypertrophy this time. Or yeah. <laughs> he's changed. He's changed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there was. Well, I was just looking at my little questions of other things. Um, we've done traumatic brain injury. Da, da, da. There was a, a a very complex question actually from um, one of the medical students actually on on Nansig, uh, which is kind of like a neurology neurosurgery network for undergrads, uh, wanting to know about epileptic epileptogenic network analysis and the kind of like the next big thing yeah you know, where's that coming so we might we might want to preface that maybe with a with, <laughs> with a comment about what that actually means yeah i guess um what do you think of it as i, I mean we've all got um uh if, if your brain's a um a atlas of the uk road system you're gonna have motorways and a roads and b roads and it's easy, relatively easy to map the main um, motorways and connections and then work out what parts of your brain are on together and off together. Mm. And then broadly, you'd say <clears throat> there's an active and a default as a resting network. So the resting network is really important because that's where the seizures come from. And that's why you're much more likely to have seizures when you're on receive or when you're vegging out. And if you're really focusing on something, I think that's one of the reasons why it stopped. People are relatively protected from having a seizure when they're riding a bike or doing something really focused. Right. But if you're driving on a A road or motorway driving and you're in receive mode, you'll be a lot more vulnerable. Um, it, par it might partially explain why some you get some epilepsies are only happening uh, overnight in sleep. Um, um, and I guess the, the best example of an epilepsy that is a network epilepsy is um i'm sorry syndromes is um lennox gasto syndrome because whatever the insult was and it could be a tumor or genetic change or a brain injury early in life you get a secondary network change and that network change is so similar in individuals that you when we meet them in adult practice i couldn't tell you whether they had tuberous sclerosis or early life meningitis because the network changes are so similar and these are the kids who will be wearing helmets with because they're drop seizures who are a real balancing act to control because sometimes the meds will make them worse rather than just more sedated mm. um and they're the people for whom cannabis medicine is now licensed and um, when you say they've got a similar network how yeah. are you defining that network or measuring that network similarity yeah so it's a about um so sometimes it's the output of that network 
the fact that they have similar seizures, myoclonus, clusters of tonic seizures, particularly convulsions and um, what they call atypical absence. So longer absence seizures where you're less out of it. But it's for me, it's, always, it's that they have these clusters of tonic seizures that are um, really, yeah, a really key, key feature of this abnormal network. And the dye is set, you know, the cells that, you know, fire together, wire together, and then you've got this uh, rigid network for which there's very little, when you meet them later in life, that you can, you can, you can remodel this network. It must be plastic, but there must be something about repeated um, signals going through it that makes it very resistant to change. I mean, there, there are functional MRI and um, tractography studies of it, Mm-hmm. Um, demonstrating this too, but this is what it would look like in a clinic space. And um, are, are we, you know, you, you mentioned coming back to something you said earlier, Reese, about you know you're looking for looking for the next generation, looking forward to the next generation EEG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is making me think, you know, like, what 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 are the next kind of steps forward in the sort of diagnostic kind of assessment of patients with seizures, you know, like, cause, cause you know, my, I, my, my limit is, well, okay. If they've got normal ECG, if, if we're lucky enough to get a three Tesla MRI, um, plus or minus a, a number of different types of EEG, depending on the, the kind of age of onset and you know, what we're looking for. Um, what, what should we really be doing? Like money's no object. Yep. Um, you know, what's, what's the next decade of tech going to deliver for it? Yeah. It's different. Okay, so the one that is probably on its way because it's, it's now in research and if it passes that stage would enter clinical practice is a portable MEG. Um, you know, one person wearable MEG um, would give us a, a high resolution uh, EEG that you could wear throughout your daily practice, daily, daily um, uh, uh, activities but it would allow us to look at high frequency oscillation in a way that you know currently we're only looking at an EEG tells you whether you should you should take a boat out to sail you know you've got choppy water or you've only got spiky water and you wouldn't be sailing on spiky water but here you'd be able to look at um, just intrinsically how hyperactive a brain is or what it would take to make that brain seize and I think that could be quite attractive what would that translate to i suppose what would that translate to in terms of kind of management yeah Yeah, i guess so i i i mean what people are trying to get from it would be a seizure susceptibility score Hmm. so you could um take somebody off a provoked seizure first epileptic seizure or second third fourth seizure and work out when enough is enough and when you should start medication right um that would be the ideal because currently we've got a one size fits all that you don't start after one but you do after two um which it's nice to have a, a, a ready reckoner but it probably isn't right yeah. um what about um and i'm thinking you know in my own line of work um the kind of synucleinopathies and movement disorders and neurodegeneration there's obviously this kind of big enthusiasm for monoclonal antibodies and yeah. kind of uh, anti-sense oligonucleotide interventions and these yeah. kind of things. I mean, I have literally no idea what any of those will do. Um, yeah. And and if they do work, how would we even afford them? Yeah. But are there similar sort of 
is there a similar direction to travel with epilepsy in general or specific syndromes? Are you thinking actually this is going to be a game changer? Yeah, so I mean, um, in the single gene epilepsies, uh, which is which will change paediatric practice, but it won't come into adult practice for quite some time, there will be single gene disorder treatments like the ASO treatments you mentioned, or gene therapy uh, treatments that rescue the gene product. Um, that would be really interesting once they, those people transition into adult clinics to see what Drave without seizure looks like, yeah. or Lennox Gaster without seizure, because it, there will be a neurodevelopmental disorder there. Um, I, I don't think it will rescue the phenotype. It'll be too crude for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, but um, one of the things that we've really struggled with therapeutically is that our drugs are anti-seizure, but not anti-epilepsy. So there's a biological question that we just haven't addressed. We are, you know, we've got, we've got pain drugs, but we haven't worked out what's causing pain. And we can, we can work out whether you've a neuropathic or a, or organic pain disorder and give you one drug or another. But we, you know, after doing a scan to make sure you don't have a tumor in your spinal cord or a tumor in your brain, um, our, our, our treatments are quite blunt. Mm -hmm. So um, the ketogenic diet and a pill, um, microbiome uh, treatments, um, they're, all, they're all being studied, but they are all anti-seizure rather than anti-epilepsy. Uh, just by the by, there's a um, there's a there's a um, anti-epileptic drug with very good efficacy just on, over the horizon. So it's just available in the states and will be coming here. Well, end of this year, beginning of next, um, and that could be not a game changer, but it could be a really interesting one because I, I'm not entirely sure why you'd put somebody on a drug with a smaller chance of seizure freedom when that one exists. So it yeah. could be the next one that. Um, it doesn't begin with L, but uh, it becomes oh, the next one that adds, comes onto that list. <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to have to change my teaching whole thing. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. depends a little bit how, how it's priced. And how yeah. It's yeah, yeah. You like all these things. Um, yeah. you know, I, can re I can remember dis many discussions about the cost of clopidogrel. Um, yeah. You know, how, how really we should still be using aspirin until clopidogrel came down in price. And yeah. I think it's not so much of an issue now, is it? Um, and I guess Levitarastam probably had a similar. Kind of uh, yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, back again. Um, I, I run out of the questions that I had jotted down. Um, I suppose is maybe uh, I don't know if there. I mean, people have been typing questions. which actually is really helpful as opposed to because uh, everybody's been very good at um, turning off their video screens <laughs> and muting themselves, which is great. Um, I mean. Well, I'm going to ask what I'm going to I'm going to ask one more question. But if anybody's got any little burning issues that they want to ping through, maybe now is a good time to do that. If you get your fingers flying over the keyboards, folks. Um, my, my last question was really just around the sort of um, sort of insights to your younger self, sort of kind of Radio Four style question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like you know so if you were kind of casting your mind back to your kind of early reg time as a as a trainee neurologist what do you what what would you wish you'd sort of had clear in your mind around epilepsy then that you think god it would have been so much easier if i just had that straight yeah um i think I so I, I'm an actually optimistic person, and I'm sort of hardwired to be um, 
interested in things. Mm. And, I, and I allowed people to put me off things that I later developed an interest in. Um, so there were certain things even within the specialty that I decided other people did that, so that's not for me. And it's useful to have had, um, uh, to be immersed in that. Um, so I, I, I went to Melbourne for a year thinking I was going to learn epilepsy genetics with, with Doug. And I arrived and I said, look, you're a Brit. You, you won't know enough EEG, so you're going to learn EEG with us. You think, oh, gee whiz, I don't know if that's what I want to do. But it was useful. It was yeah. useful because you can have an opinion about something when you've sat and really, really cogitated about something you've seen or a colleague's patient. And, um, you know, they, they, had the, they had EEG on the desktop everywhere in the same way that we dial up the MR and, you know, look back at it, having examined the patient to see if there really is a, uh, a white dot in the right spot. Um, they would go back and look at the EEG a couple of times after clinic. Um, um, and they were really, I think that was a, a, a really nice environment. I haven't moved my practice as far as they have, but it was nice to have been trained in that environment for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to admit, I, I spent just a long time in clinic listening to people and uh, people, there's a, there's a social economic thing with epilepsy, the, the opposite of MS. So we see lots of people who've had, you know, chaotic shit lives. You know, it's, it's a, it, lots of people who've had um, deprivation and trauma. Um, and sometimes you just need to listen and tell them, that sounds awful, I'm so sorry. Uh, I did a lot of trying to fix people's problems for them, mm. thinking that a supportive letter or some advice or a medication change would fix this, but actually sometimes just listening was what was needed or acknowledging the problems, what was needed. Yeah. I think it's good advice in general, regardless of the specialty, isn't it? I think, you know, there's, there's just some stuff you can't fix yeah. but you can, and you can, but you can listen. That might be, I, I haven't seen, uh, unless anybody feels uh, strongly, given that we've taken up an hour and a half of your time uh, and no other questions have pinged through, I might, um, I might say thank you very much for that. Cause that seemed like a nice way to end that sort of discussion. I've yeah. been recording, I've been recording it. I think uh, um, 